Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.scbts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. A parable that I have entitled, God Sent His Son and We Killed Him. Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 1 and going through verse 12. And he, that is Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. In the Holy Scriptures, there are a number of biblical truths that we need to always keep together so that we do not run the risk of distorting them or understanding them out of balance. For example, we best understand the beauty of heaven against the backdrop of the horrors of hell. We see mercy more wonderfully when we contrast it with the severity of judgment. And grace will be better loved when we appreciate it when seen in the contrast with this thing called wrath. It's also important that we keep several things together, especially when it comes to two central moments in the life of our Lord Jesus, one being His incarnation, but the other being His crucifixion. In other words, Christmas must always be celebrated in light of Easter. Bethlehem should never be viewed in separation from Jerusalem. And the cradle in a stable providing a resting place for a little baby must always be viewed in tandem with a bloody man hanging on a cross at Calvary. The text that we have before us this morning is an extended parable. It's often referred to in popular language as the parable of the wicked tenants. It is a story that Jesus tells, and once more we see things in tandem brought together. We see in this parable judgment and mercy, grace and wrath, and Christmas and Easter. And when you read the parable, it's one of the more obvious ones in terms of its meaning, for it's not very hard to understand what Jesus is saying in this parable. God sent His Son, and we killed Him. 
In other words, there was a murder in the vineyard. And we know who committed the crime. Let's get the context. Jesus has recently made His way into Jerusalem. The triumphal entry recorded in chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. A couple of days later, He would enrage the religious leaders by cleansing the temple. This is recorded in chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. Then the tension and the conflict grows worse as He embarrasses the religious leaders in a public showdown over the source of the ministry of John the Baptist as well as the source of His own ministry. In fact, He will so inflame their hatred that the Bible reveals that through this parable, the wicked intent of their heart is finally made manifest. A wicked intent that we actually see all the way back in chapter 3 and verse 6, where once more being embarrassed by the Lord, they took counsel to destroy Him. This parable then is also something of an allegorical parable because unlike some parables, there are a number of figures, number of individuals mentioned in the story and it's crucial that we understand their identity and actually it's not problematic at all. You see, Jesus drew from a very popular parable found in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, and now he applies it to his particular context. As we walk through the parable, we will see very clearly the man who plants the vineyard is God the Father. The vineyard is the nation of Israel. The tenants are the religious leaders of Israel, the servants, the faithful prophets, and of course the beloved Son is Jesus Himself. This particular parable is also found in the synoptic gospels of Matthew chapter 21 and Luke chapter 20. So having established then the context in which Jesus tells this very striking story and in the process condemns the religious leaders for their rejection of Him and unbelief, what is it that we see that not only applied to them in that day but also that you and I need to carefully weigh and consider in our day as well? I make three observations then from this parable of the wicked tenants. Number one, God is incredibly patient even when sinners resist His gracious wooing. Verse 1 tells us He began to speak to them again in parables. A parable has been called an earthly story or analogy with a heavenly meaning. This is the only extended parable that we actually find in Mark's Gospel outside of chapter 4. Those who study the parables have referred to it as a judgment parable or even a prophetic parable. And what it does is it allows us to see the Christ event from God's perspective. In many ways, it resembles the parable that was told by Nathan to David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 15. And just like David, the religious leaders will snare themselves in the midst of hearing this story told by Jesus. It is a parable that gives evidence of the fact that our God is a gracious, loving God in spite of the fact that Israel, in her relationship to the Son of God, rejected Him and then put Him to death. In fact, as I was reading the parable immediately, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 came to my mind where the Bible says our God is patient toward us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come and reach repentance. This particular story would have been very familiar to those listening and it reflected quite well the world of Jesus in that day. You have on the one hand the wealthy absentee landowners and then the tenant farmers who would tend the, the field and draw a profit from it as well as pay rent. 
It describes the kind of thing that happened all the time in Galilee because there was always tension between these wealthy landowners who were nowhere to be seen and the tenant farmers who worked so diligently and yet in many cases received very little from their hard work. The parable itself will be readily embraced by the religious leaders until Jesus makes the turn at chapter 12 and verse 6 because many of them were themselves wealthy. In fact, it seems historically that many of the religious leaders would have been in the group of the wealthy landowners. And so initially, they would have been very sympathetic with the landowners, only to find as Jesus moved through the parable, he's not talking about them as landowners, but rather he is talking about the religious leaders as the wicked tenants who would kill the son sent by the landowner. In other words, like David, they would recognize their guilt, but unlike King David, they would not repent of their sin. Now, what is it that we see in particular in the first five verses that gives us insight into this God who is incredibly patient with sinners? Well, number one, God has given to us many good gifts. In fact, Psalm 73, verse 1 says, Truly God is good to Israel. And so what we discover here is by analogy that Israel is something like a vineyard. In other words, God selected Israel and He planted her as a special and as an elect vineyard. Uh, He cared for her. Uh, He provided for her. He put in place leaders that could protect her, keep her safe, and enable her to prosper and bear fruit for His glory and for their good. And yet, going back to the parable that Jesus draws from, in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 2, we discover even then that the nation of Israel did not perform as God intended. Indeed, the Bible says in Isaiah 5, 2, God looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. In other words, in spite of the fact that he planted her, that he put in place protective fencing and a tower, she did not produce good things, but rather bad things. He went to great expense to make sure everything was right, and God had a right to expect from them, as he has a right to expect from you and me, a bountiful harvest. Instead, the vineyard tragically failed in its divine assignment. But God had given to them many good gifts. But then also, God had also sent to them many faithful messengers. Yes, it says there in verse 1, He planted this vineyard. He put a fence around it. He dug the pit for the wine press. He built the tower to protect it. He leased it to tenants and then went into another country. But then when it came time for the harvest, it says there in verse 2, He sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard and note the response. They took him and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. C.H. Dodge said the tenants paid their rent in blows. And so rather than providing the produce that was rightly the landowners, they beat the servant and sent him away empty-handed. Well, as we have seen, this tenant, uh, these tenants are working for a gracious and patient landowner. And so verse 3 says they... Uh, Verse 4 says, again, he sent to them uh, another servant. But now we see an escalation in the way they treat the servants sent by the landowner. They struck him on the head and they treated him shamefully. That word shameful there means to insult. It has the idea of dishonoring. 
Eugene Peterson, in his uh, paraphrase, the message says, that one, <clears throat> they tarred him <clears throat> and they feathered him. So he sent one and they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another and they struck him on the head and insulted him and treated him shamefully. Verse 5, he sent another. And now it escalates to the highest level and him they killed. And so with many others. Some they beat and some they killed. Of course, the servants represent the faithful prophets that God had sent to Israel time and time again. Jeremiah makes note of this in chapter 7, verse 25 and 26. And again in Jeremiah chapter 24, verses 4 through 7. Again, as I was reading this text and thinking about that, Hebrews 1.1 popped into my mind, which reminds us, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But later in that same book, in chapter 11, verses 35 through 38, we, we read of the treatment that was received by the prophets of God. Some were tortured. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered about in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And if you take just a moment and go back and read through the Old Testament, you discover some tragic realities complemented by Jewish tradition. For example, we read in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 2, that Jeremiah was beaten and put in stocks. Tradition has it that it was Isaiah the prophet who was actually sawn in two. In 2 Chronicles chapter 24 and verse 21, we read of a prophet named Zechariah who was stoned to death in the court of the temple. Nehemiah, when they had been returned to the land, would also indict the nation of Israel and would say in chapter 9 and verse 26, the people, they were disobedient. They rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And of course, in recent days, John the Baptist had been beheaded as really the last and greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus himself would speak to this very directly in Matthew chapter 23 in what is called his Sermon of Woes. Listen to what our Lord said in verse 34 and verse 35. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and uh, the altar. In other words, God's gracious patience was extended repeatedly again and again and again to the nation of Israel. But in their rebellion and sinfulness, like you and like me, they resisted His wooing. To quote Tim Keller, they took the good things of God turned them into a God thing and thereby made them a bad thing. They took what was His and in rebellion said, well, actually, it's mine and it's ours. Again, just a quick word of application. Those of us who are called to be pastors need to heed this parable very well. Oh, we may not be the unbelieving uh, Jewish leaders of the first century who crucified our Lord, but if we're not careful... The vineyard of our ministry that God gives us to tend, 
and to protect and to bear fruit. If we're not careful, we may begin to think that vineyard is my vineyard. That church is my church. These people are my people when all along none of that belongs to you or to me. It all belongs to God. And so God in incredible patience is incredibly patient even when sinners resist His gracious wooing. Number two, look at verses 6 through 8. When the Father sent His Son, He sent the one He loves and we should honor. Verse 6, He had still one other, a beloved Son. Finally, He sent Him to them saying, They will respect My Son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. The parable takes a remarkable turn in verse 6. Oh, it continues the theme of God's patience and His long-sufferingness with humanity, but we also begin now to see the amazing grace of a God who would send His only Son to reconcile sinners who, as Romans 3, verses 9 through 20 summarize so well, do not seek God, do nothing good before God, have tongues that deceive and are full of curses and bitterness, whose feet are swift to shed blood, the way of peace they do not know, and they have no fear of God before their eyes. Now, once more, I understand that in the text, uh, Jesus is talking initially and directly to the religious leaders, and yet I must confess that when I look at their behavior and I look at how they act, I see myself in the crowd. I see you there too. In fact, Kent Hughes is most certainly correct. Every Christian is in view in what we read in verses 6, 7, and 8. Note with me first in verse 6 that the Father sent His Son as an act of grace. It's interesting, isn't it? The landowner now becomes a father. In one final attempt, the, the ESV says, finally, literally, last of all, uh, something unique to the Gospel of Mark, last of all, to receive from the tenants what is rightly his, he sends on a mission a beloved son. That word sin is apostolin. Uh, we get our word apostle from it. So with something of a mission, and of course in the context of what its ultimate meaning is, with a divine mission, God sends his son. Note the text refers to him as a beloved son, a son that he is certain they will respect. That phrase, beloved son, hurion agapeton, is filled with biblical and theological significance. It really became idiomatic in the day of Jesus for an only son. The great Greek scholar A.T. Robertson was most certainly right when he said Jesus evidently had in mind the language of the Father to him at his baptism when he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well, please, we hear the same language again in Mark chapter 9 and verse 7 where he says, this is my beloved son, hear him. Of course, it does have a rich biblical history, does it not? It is first noted, I would uh, point out, in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, when God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. It certainly is a reminder, is it not, of that most wonderful verse, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, His 
beloved son. It again is, I think, even somewhat reminiscent of that great messianic prophecy that we love to quote at Christmas time, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 and verse 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. But note the last phrase of Isaiah 9, verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It is somewhat reminiscent, is it not, of what it says here in our text in verse 11. This was the Lord's doing, and it is a marvelous thing in our eyes. In many ways, the sending of the Son was the same kind of mission that He had sent His servants on. And yet there, is, uh, there are some differences, are there not, between the servants and the Son? The servants, they are many. The Son, He is unique. The servants are hirelings, but the Son is an heir. The servants are forerunners, but the Son is the very last one. And so if verses 1 through 5 convey to us the hope of God for His people... Verse 6 certainly conveys the loving kindness of God for His people. The Father sent His Son as an act of grace. But note also in verses 7 and 8, sinners murdered the Son in what I call an act of insanity. The tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill Him and the inheritance. It will be ours. And so they took Him and they killed Him and they threw Him out of the vineyard. In the parable, the seeing of the son may have led the tenants to wrongly conclude that the father had died. And so with foolish and evil intent, they surmise, well, if we assassinate the son, then we can claim this property as our own. Now, I acknowledge that would have been a very bold act on their part in that day, but it is certainly a plausible scenario. It's also interesting to note that the phrase, come, let us kill him, is the same exact phrase we find in Genesis chapter 37 and verse 20 on the lips of the brothers of Joseph. I like what David Garland, who teaches at Baylor University, says about this particular reaction to the sending of the Son. Covetousness makes humans want what they should not have. It makes them think that this desire should be fulfilled at all costs. Other persons become things to exploit, and our desires become our gods. Do humans think that by erasing God from their lives, they can take control of their earthly and eternal destinies? Apparently so. Here is the utter foolishness of sinful rebellion against God. And indeed, we see this utter foolishness in what we read in the text. Indeed, three days later, the religious leaders would live out this parable and they would take our Lord Jesus and they would crucify Him and they would throw Him outside the city. In fact, throwing Him out of the vineyard may allude to the fact that He was crucified outside the city walls. They would murder Him and indeed, they would not even give Him a decent and honorable burial, an incredible offense in the day of which Jesus lived. In fact, I would add it's an incredible offense 
in any day. So in God sending His Son, we are reminded of Christmas, the incarnation, the gift of God and His amazing love. But in the killing of God's Son, we're reminded of Easter. We're reminded of the crucifixion. We're reminded of the grace of God and His incredible sacrifice. Again, reading the text, John 1.11 quickly popped into my mind. He came into His own, and His own did not receive Him. Charles Spurgeon preached a wonderful sermon on this very passage. And in commenting on what we see in verses 7 and 8, he simply said this of our Savior, If you reject Him, He answers you with tears. If you wound Him, He bleeds out cleansing. If you kill Him, He dies to redeem. If you bury Him, He rises again to bring us resurrection life. But then He quickly adds, But, Let us see for a minute who this messenger is. He is one greatly beloved of His Father and in Himself is of surpassing excellence. The Lord Jesus Christ is so inconceivably glorious that I tremble at any attempt to describe His glory. Assuredly, He is very God of very God, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. And yet He deigned to take upon Himself human form. He was born an infant into our weakness and He lived as a carpenter to share our toil. He took upon Himself the form of a servant and yet in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is the Prince of the kings of the earth and yet He took a towel and washed His disciples' feet. Because of His Godhead, you must not dare to harden your hearts. He is God's well-beloved. And if you are wise, He will be yours. Do not turn your back on Him whom all the angels worship. Beware, lest you reject one whom God loves so well, for He will take it as an an insult to Himself. He that despises the anointed of God has blasphemed God Himself. You put your finger into the very eye of God when you slight His Son. In grieving the Christ, you vex the very heart of God. Therefore, do not do it. I beseech you then by the love which God bears to His Son to listen to this masterless messenger of mercy who would persuade you to repent. Very simply, to reject the Son is to reject the One who sent Him. It really is nothing less than a spiritual act of insanity. So when the Father sent His Son, He sent the one He loves and we should honor. But then finally, number three, even though people believe they can escape it, God's judgment will certainly come. Verse 9, Jesus asked the rhetorical question, What will the owner of the vineyard do? In light of the way you have treated His Son, and Jesus answers Himself, He will come and destroy the tenants, and He will give the vineyard to others. Romans 11:22 reminds us both of the kindness and the severity of God. In other words, to slide and reject the Son is to invite the wrath of the Lamb into your life. Once more, Charles Spurgeon says it so well, I could only quote him to bring home the import of what is being said. Remember once more that if you do not hear the well-beloved Son of God, you have refused your last hope. He is God's ultimatum. Nothing remains when Christ is refused. No one else can be sent. Heaven itself contains no further messenger. 
If Christ is rejected, hope is rejected. I should then like every person here that is unconverted to remember that there is no other gospel and no more sacrifice for sin. Oh, I have heard talk of a larger hope than the gospel sets before us. It is a fable with nothing in Scripture to warrant it. Rejecting Christ, you have rejected all. You have shut against yourself the one door of hope. There remains nothing but damnation for those who believe not in Jesus. Indeed, the one rejected and the one murdered will now be vindicated. And how you and I respond to this grand reversal is indeed of eternal weight and significance. Verse 9, our response to the Son will be decisive for our eternal destiny. When the owner of the vineyard, what will he do? He will come and destroy those who have rejected and slighted his Son, and he will give the vineyard to another. The word for owner there, by the way, is the word kurios. We get our word Lord there. I don't think the usage of the word there is by accident. Of course, we know historically that this is what happened to the nation of Israel. In A.D. 70, God sent Titus, the Roman general, into the city, destroying the city and laying waste the nation, bringing it to ruins. And yet you and I need to be reminded today that that same kind of judgment will fall on us, will fall on anyone who, as Hebrews 10.29 says, have trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace indeed two verses later the author of hebrews gets it exactly right it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living god our response to the son will be decisive for our eternal destiny but then finally the rejection of the son results in a glorious reversal that is marvelous in verse 10 Jesus quotes from a psalm, Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. Very interestingly, that is the same psalm that the people were singing to Jesus as he made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem in chapter 11, verse 9 and verse 10. In other words, this is a messianic psalm, and more than that, this psalm and this particular parable reveals that Jesus knows very clearly who he is and why he has come. Interestingly, now the the parable shifts, does it not, in metaphor and imagery. We now move from a vineyard to a building, and we move from a sun to a stone. And Jesus says there in verse 10, the stone that the builders rejected, it has become the cornerstone. This would become a very popular verse in the New Testament that would be repeated continually. Acts 4.11, Romans 9.33, 1 Peter 2.6-8 as an explanation of why the nation of Israel had rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They rejected the stone and cast it aside saying it's worthless of no value. And yet God comes along in a marvelous reversal, takes what man rejected and makes it the cornerstone. Literally, He makes it the head of the corner. In other words, Jesus' rejection, His humiliation, His crucifixion, and first blush, a horrible tragedy, God now uses in a grand reversal that can only be described as the Lord's doing. The, The Holman Christian Standard says, this came from the Lord. 
And Jesus says it is something marvelous and wonderful in our eyes. Sadly, many today don't see it that way. Sadly, the religious leaders did not see it that way. Verse 12 says, as we conclude our study, they were seeking, literally they were conniving to seize him, to arrest him, but they feared the people. And why did they want to seize him and kill him? Oh, they understood. He had told the parable against them. And so with premeditated malice, they moved forward with their plan to murder the son. Isn't it interesting what Herod the Great failed to do with that little infant boy in Bethlehem born to Joseph and Mary? The religious leaders of the day will accomplish outside the city walls through the crucifixion of Jesus. In some ways, they're like the demons who early in Mark's gospel recognized Jesus as a threat to them. And like the demons, they refuse to submit to his lordship and they plot in vain how they might destroy him. Paul will help us later understand all that is going on when he tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the cross was indeed foolishness and a stumbling block to the Jewish nation. But for those of us who believe, it is the power of God unto salvation. In the last battle by C.S. Lewis, Queen Lucy says to Lord de Gorey, quote, In our world, too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. I think we could add this morning from this parable, In our world, there was also a cross, and hanging on it was someone greater and more wonderful than our whole world. It was the Lord's doing. It is my prayer that it will be marvelous in all of our eyes. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this parable that so beautifully brings together Christmas and Easter, the cradle and the cross. And it is a reminder that you sent to us your very best, your beloved Son, and in wicked rebellion we killed him. Often, Lord, the question is raised, who killed Jesus? And it is correct to say the Jewish leaders killed him. The Romans killed him. But we must also acknowledge this day that we killed him with our sin. But then in the final analysis, we must acknowledge that the Father sent his Son, knowing in advance what they would do, and that in amazing grace it pleased the Father to crush his Son. That is amazing grace. May we this day respond appropriately to that grace by faithful service and bold and courageous proclamation of the glorious, life-changing gospel of King Jesus. For we make our prayer in His name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. 
You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.